to the Mind of Matter podcast, Kate here. Today the guest is Dr. Leopoldo Petriano, who is a principal investigator at the Champollion Center for the Unknown in Lisbon, Portugal. Dr. Petriano is interested in the principles of inter- and intracortical connectivity. He levels an appropriately multi-pronged attack on this fundamental problem. For example, to better understand cortical feedback, he studied visual cortex and the functional organization of connections therein. While when looking at the long-range circuits, he chose to study the communication between sensory and motor cortices. Aside from effortlessly switching between preparations and nailing complex techniques, his lab also develops novel behavioral tasks. I think we can learn a lot from Dr. Petriano's style. He chose a fundamental problem, the nature of cortical computation, which is broad enough to deal with fascinating questions for years to come, while at the same time it remains sufficiently tractable to inspire people to join his team and do excellent work in his lab. I think this clearly defined principle became a red thread in all his work, giving it unity and endowing it with exemplary clarity. It is a pity not everyone attends the Monday evening talk series whose speakers I usually interview. It is especially lamentable in this particular case. I thought the diagrams Dr. Petrian used in his talk to relate his work to other findings were exceptional in their economy of expression. Those were just balls and sticks diagrams, but they managed to provide a broader theoretical context for the audience and made it instantly clear how Dr. Petriano's findings fit into a bigger picture. You will find some examples of those in the blog post accompanying this episode. I hope you've had a good start to your year, and now, please enjoy the episode. For a start, I like to ask about the background of a guest, and I've seen mm-hmm. that you've studied biology, yes, um, and then did a PhD in neurogenesis field, and now you are very center piece of the systems neuroscience field, I would say, mm-hmm. and at least from mm-hmm. the outside, it looks like it is kind of overpopulated by former theoretical physicists. Mm. And I was wondering, how do you feel as a biologist with your background in systems neuroscience now? Does it help you or would you have preferred to have some more quantitative training? Yeah, so I had some quantitative training. I studied uh, biology, but I started by studying engineering. So I, I, I did uh, two years of engineering school, so I, I got well trained in physics and math. But then, then I didn't get any more quantitative formal training uh, in my PhD. In so it was more, you know, wet neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Let's put it away. But I, I think it's not a handicap. Uh, certainly, it's, it's useful to to have quantitative skills, but uh, I don't see them as more valuable than your your experimental or biologist. Skills. I think they're, they're complementary, and you end up doing going after questions with a different approach, and then you you find your own way. You know, I t- I'm an experimentalist mm-hmm. because I'm not a, a, a theoretical neuroscientist. I want to see evidence for a theory before I go. I I, I, I go. I buy a theory, mm-hmm. and a lot of theoretical neuroscientists, they, 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 it's it's more abstract. So that already gives me a different approach. I, I want I go after behind evidence for different theories. I certainly am inspired by them. I use the theoretical neuroscience literature and I read it avidly, and inspires my experience. But I, it, but me being a biologist mm-hmm. takes me on a different path. 
And that's good. It's more diverse. Yeah, and also it shows in your work that you take this inspiration through theory and then go after very complex experiments, which not everyone can pull off. Exactly, yeah. And yes, yes. I, I think that might be in part because you've had this postdoc in Svoboda Lab, which yes. I think has a very signature style. And yes. I was wondering, yes. how did that interaction influence your program in your own lab and, yes. the, and the way you choose problems to work on? Probably it has a lot of influence, and it's difficult to know. But yeah, I know Svoboda Lab is very, he's a physicist and he's very quantitative. And that's where I learned maybe to do very quantitative biology, but exp- but also he's an t- experimental biologist at the end. So I'm also an experimental biologist, but I learned more this quantitative experimental approaches uh, from him. And probably that influences a lot my science. But no, my PhD experience was very different. Mm-hmm. It was not from a quantitative lab. I, s- I can see elements of both approaches in my my research. Mm-hmm. No, there's a biological intuition, a biological way of thinking that you know, I can relate more to my PhD. And, and, and then the experimental approach and the way of, of doing and performing experiments is more related to my postdoc or a mixture of both. Okay. I think I can trace the style of science I do from all my influences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How would you describe this biological thinking? What is distinct about it? Let's see, that's difficult. But I think, I think there's an approach of many labs of, of just focusing on quantifying things better and more precisely mm-hmm. or measure things for the first time just be, you know, because you, have, you, know, you can develop a new method to do it. Or you can, uh, and then you know, a lot, for a long time, biologists were not, didn't have a lot of sophisticated methods. So I think the, the key was finding the the best question that you can answer, <laughs> you know, what, what is the, you know, what will, be, will, what will give us biological insight about how things work, you know, and uh, they're not mutually exclusive. I think you can have a little bit of both, but I, I think some labs emphasize one type more than other, in my view. Hmm. That, that, there's biology that's technically driven and biology that is question driven. And I think that, that normally you want to fuse though, both, okay, but uh, it depends where you put your emphasis. That's interesting that you phrased it that way because I actually was meaning to ask almost the exact same question because looking at your publication record, I saw that you stick to the neocortex, yes, but you look at different areas like the motor area, Mm. the visual area, Mm. and use different techniques. And I was actually wondering whether you first choose a question and then you choose the preparation according to the question or you see which methods are available to answer the questions at a certain level and then start from there. So the, the, the different areas are, are basically a little bit what my career took me, but also because I, and this is a belief, I think that the cortex is doing a fundamental thing everywhere. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter if it's auditory cortex or visual cortex or barrel cortex or even motor cortex. And so there's... Um, Traditional neuroscience has been divided in these micro words, you know, the auditory cortex, mm-hmm. people will go to a meeting, the visual cortex will, and I, I think that the cortex is probably doing something very similar in all these areas, or probably everywhere. So that's a, it, it's an ideology in a way. <laughs> so I, I, I don't mind jumping uh, cortical areas uh, to whatever is more uh, prone to the questions I want to answer. Then the questions I want to answer in a way are also influenced by the methods, okay? Because it's always, um, you know, there's always uh, new things 
to explore when there are new methods. Okay, so uh, the same thing I was telling you before is a balance of both. Okay, it's like uh, no, I I I focus on interactions across areas, and that can be traced back probably to my postdoc where I developed methods to map the connectivity of long-range connections and also measure the signals of long-range connections. So that got me into thinking about what computations were implemented by these interactions and one thing led to another. Mm -hmm. So at the end, all stems from some methodological breakthroughs. Although a lot of the questions I do down in the lab are not done with, with um, um, they're not done by developing new methods or completely. Or maybe these are just small tweaks of existing methods. Yeah, and also, I'm not sure whether every time a new method comes out, it's justified to give it as much credit as it is given. So, for example, you've had a perspective in 2009, which is almost 10 years now, about optogenetics in nature. And there you mentioned that it's a nice tool and it will allow us to get the structure function relationship. But mm. then later on, there were also surveys of the community and a sort of more or less common opinion is that 95% of findings with optogenetics could have been obtained otherwise or haven't shown us anything completely new and what was not expected. So do you have an example from your own work, I think you have, <laughs> mm. that you think that you've discovered something that was enabled by um, this technique coming online at this point? No, yeah, certainly. I mean, uh, we use optogenetics a lot on, on to map uh, connectivity. It's like a niche thing. Most, most optogenetic works is really to related to manipulate neuron populations and measure behavior. So that is a much more constrained question. It's much easier to, to interpret the results because it's just saying this neuron population connects with that one. And we, we published several papers with new findings of how uh, long-range connections are organized that I think are uh, not impossible, probably much slower and difficult to do with other methods like rabies tracings or EM, we also can do answer those kind of questions, but they take much longer and they, they require us. People usually don't, don't use them to answer those questions because they take a huge effort for, for a relatively um, framed question that cannot be expanded. And when you do optogenetics, you can spend uh, fewer resources and time to answer the same questions. So it's, it's, it's like, I think, definitely for those questions, the methods are where were critical, yeah. So you have a lot of papers that are titled like principles and the logic, and I was wondering whether you ever get pushback from, from the readers or viewers, because I think biologists are sometimes, uh, and especially neuroscientists, are always yearning for finding principles, but very skeptical of actually having them very generally applicable. I don't remember how one of logic but I have, uh, I have some about describing organization, yeah. something like that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, of course, these, these titles are a bit of uh, generalization, usually measure one area and one thing, and you, you hope that it's the same everywhere. And they stem through the same ideology I told you before, yeah. that I think if I found it in one cortical region, it's going to be similar in others. And, and a lot of the things that, that, that we measure that other people measure in other areas, or before mm -hmm. we did it, maybe it was already in the literature with other methods, uh, to a smaller scale, tend to be generalizable. But yeah, it's always a risk when you call it a uh, you know, fundamental principle. But I think a lot of the claims, we, no, I think I published are, are not that grandiose, okay? 
it's, it's like about how connections are organized in, in cortical circuits and they tend to be conserved because they, they look very similar across areas. And, but yeah, I agree that uh, you can always overstretch yourself with those kind of titles. Okay. <laughs> but your lab is indeed getting at the circuit motifs at uh, several different angles. So what piece of evidence do you find most compelling for people who still very much support specialization of particle areas? What, what is the killer piece of evidence that you... That there is a specialization? That, that, that there is conservation of circuit motifs. That yes, there is specialization, but the commonality is more prominent. It, it, it depends where you see the, the glass half full or half empty. Okay, so... There clearly a lot of things are very similar, but also things are different. And the things where the things, the key question is where the things that are different are fundamentally changing the computations, or there's more tweaks of the same kind of function that needs a specialization. A classical thing is like, you know, in the motor area, at least in, the, in humans, you have these giant bed cells. Are these, and they're not in a mouse. Are they really because it's doing something different, or it's just because you need to send an axon for two meters? that in a mouse you don't have and just need to make them bigger. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's a complete new function or it's that it's just a tweak of an existing function. And then recently, as you know, the, the Allen and other things published RNA-seq data, big data, and they show that the interneurons are very conserved, but the excitatory neurons are not so conserved. And again, is this because they're different or is it because it's just a trivial explanation that if you are in a different area, you need to send the wires to a different place than from another area. And at least uh, there's some evidence that some of the variability in gene expression relates to that. Okay? Like neurons that project to different areas have different, of course, different guidance molecules or different receptors. So, uh, so at the end, as I say, it's a little bit ideological. I think that clearly a lot of things are common. There are a lot of things that are different. The argument I find, you know, you know, when I teach these classes to my students, I always say is that they, uh, you have the evolutionary argument. The, the cortex evolved relatively recently and became very big and it's very rare that evolution just created completely different things you know, uh, you know, uh, in such a short uh, amount of time. So most likely that I found something that is very useful and made more of it. That requires that some fundamental thing that was very useful that still don't know exactly what it is and you just made more of it. And that's why I tend to believe and that's why guides my research in a way. And, but it's, I agree it's ideological, I have no proof. <laughs> Yeah. But still, in pursuing this um, ideology, you already employ a lot of techniques, anatomical and functional and new behavioral paradigms. Mm. Is there a technique that you are not currently employing in your lab, but would like to introduce in the near future? Oh, many. Yeah, yeah. I think, no, I think um, there are a lot of techniques that uh, I don't use that I think would be very useful to have in the lab. You know, yeah. We don't do a lot of EM in the lab, and I think it's a fantastic method also with these high throughput methods also. High throughput EM is a fantastic thing. Um, we haven't for a long time used rabies viruses, now we're starting to play with it. So I think, yeah, it's good to incorporate all the methods that are around to answer the question. Okay. So. And for people who would be a bit lost at your very impressive publication record, what would you say is your most underrated paper? The one where you feel like that really should have made more difference than it did. Yeah, the papers that I did during my postdoc are much more cited, but they're older. So it's difficult to say that the, 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 the work from my independent lab, uh, they, they have less exposure. So I will, I will name one of them. Mm -hmm. 
or two of them, but it's not clear because they are just more recent. Mm -hmm. That's still uh, they won't perform. But um, no, we, we published a paper in 2016 showing that there's this very surprising specificity in the local diversion of axons, that the thalamic axons go to layer 4 neurons are also individual LGN axons. Mm -hmm. Bifurcate and connect to two neurons in layer 4, they're also connected with themselves. And that's probably not so surprising, uh, but we show it. But the, the thing that was very puzzling that then when then we look at layer 4, layer 2, 3 connected pairs. And LGN, normally everybody, we all think, goes to layer 4, but it's well known that it also goes to layer 2, mm -hmm. 3. And that's normally an export. But we find that the axons that connect to, to a layer 4 neurons then keep going and connect to a layer 2, 3 neurons that also connected with that layer 4 neuron. And I think for me that's a very intriguing circuit motif that it's made with extreme precision. We don't really know why it's there. That's maybe why it is a little bit doesn't get as much attention, I would say, because everybody's puzzled, including ourselves. <laughs> but if you ask me one paper, I will name that one. But I think uh, we should think more about that um, integration or inputs doesn't happen in a single layer. It happens in multiple layers and, and with high specificities connecting to neurons that are also related to it in one way. Pairs of neurons are also related in some one way uh, across layers, and we don't really know it. It's not in any model of cortical function. Well, that, that's uh, a great sort of uh, talking back to the theory, not mm. only theory, talking to biology, but also the biology giving more ideas uh, for modeling. And that brings me to a sort of uh, common question that I ask everyone. Is there a theory in neuroscience that you think is most successful today? in the sense of being able to explain the most amount of data? I'm scared of making absolute points. I would say that in, in, in the questions I care about, definitely the, um, the predictive coding theories really makes, explains a lot of unrelated observations and, and really is influence in the field. Uh, and I would say also the more recent theories of um, whether the, the neocortex is implementing something akin to backpropagation in, in deep nets. Also, and some people have, are proposing biological plausible models of how that backpropagation algorithm can be implemented by the brain, I think is in, inspiring a lot of research. So I would say that, but it's very biased because those are the things we do in the lab. But that's the kind of thing I think where, yeah, theory is really uh, very important and it's really influencing the field. And is there any recent piece of data from your lab or from any other lab, not specifically even related to your field, that makes you excited about the future in neuroscience? Definitely more excited about the future in neuroscience. <laughs> <laughs> That's where we are in this business. Uh, um, but uh, yeah, I think, I think that it seems to me at least we have a lot of powerful tools these days to, to prove these theories at this, or disprove them at the circuit level. So I think we can advance very fast in that sense, but we need ideas, we need a theory. But I'm very um, um, hopeful that, you know, by testing, I, I think we're gonna soon have a big breakthroughs in, in the way we think of the cortex. You know, that's gonna, we're gonna have a complete wiring diagram of a millimeter cube, you know, there, there are evidence like that, with functional data, we're gonna, we have a complete database of the neurons, uh, and some 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 structure is going to emerge from that data, and hopefully that will be linked with some of the theories that have been around. And I think I think hopefully something clear is going to emerge. So thank you for your time. No, thank you. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. 
And if you have any suggestions or comments, or if you would like to contribute to the podcast, please don't hesitate to contact me. You could either go to our website, gsnmunich.wordpress.com, or write me an email at e.sytnak at campus.lmu.de. And I hope now you can enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you.